89.1 KPFA in Berkeley, 89.3 KPFB in Berkeley, 88.1 KFCF in Fresno, and online at kpfa.org. The time is 3 p.m. Stay tuned next for Cover to Cover Open Book. Ranjita Giesler, and you're listening to Open Book. And we're happy to be joined by Mei Li Chai. She's just released her memoir titled Hapa Girl. Welcome to our show. Thank you. I'm very excited to be in the famed KPFA headquarters. <laughs> your memoir tells the story of your family's journey starting out in California, moving to New York, and eventually ending up in rural South Dakota. Your father's parents immigrated here from China, and your mother's family is Irish American. And at the time, that they met, it was in the late 1960s, and the country was rooted in racist fear and prejudice. So you start off chapter one with this line, I'll begin where I'm happiest or most clueless. Either adjective could be equally appropriate, which is kind of foreshadowing what's going to come. And it seems like those early years were kind of simple compared to the later years. They were blissful. (laughs) They were wonderful compared to the later years. I mean, we lived in very multicultural areas in Southern California and then the New York metropolitan area. I mean, even though most people think about New York in the 70s as kind of being the taxi driver nightmare, for me as a kid, it was it was great, you know, very diverse and nothing felt directed at, at us as a family. That only occurred when we moved to South Dakota, when we suddenly encountered this whole other part of America that, to our surprise, had deep religious and cultural biases against mixed marriages. We'll talk about that shift. Describe the time and the major shift as a young girl that you experienced. I was 12 years old and my dad got this great job, so he thought, in South Dakota at the university. When he interviewed, they had only interviewed him, so they didn't see our whole family. They didn't know he was married to a white woman and a blonde at that. And so I remember when we first moved to this town, we were walking down the sidewalk and literally cars would stop in the street and people would turn to stare at us. And I remember thinking, I turned behind myself and I would look behind to see what they were staring at, not realizing they were staring at us. And then after a while, I just, you get used to the idea that, oh, wherever I'm going to go, I'm going to be stared at because I'm obviously a freak. And We moved in the fall of 79, so it was the beginning of the 80s, which was, you'll also remember, a period of great paranoia about Japanese economic strength. So here we have this Asian man and a blonde white woman, and it just seemed like everybody's worst nightmare come true in this community. You know, oh, they really are, you know, not just going to take us over economically, but they want our white women too, which is, you know, the whole fear of which led to the lynchings after the Civil War. It led to a lot of the Exclusion Act in the 1880s. And we had to face those fears directly, which was, from a child's point of view, completely inexplicable. I was completely unprepared. And I didn't realize that our family wasn't, quote, unquote, normal. Describe that feeling more. What did that do to you? The stares and the stopping and even the shootings. Your dogs got shot your house got shot at, you know, you were fearing for your lives? Um, 
I'm still actually being treated by an acupuncturist for uh, post-traumatic stress disorder. So um, it really was deeply internalized. It, um, in the beginning, you can remain tough and you think, it's just them, what's happening, you know, this is so strange. But then over the years, because it never stopped, I began to think, I'm doing something wrong. I'm, you know, I have a bad personality, I, I don't look right, I'm offending people, I don't, and I don't even know how I'm offending people. And so it became deeply internalized, and then the fear becomes internalized, so then I became extremely shy. And then, you know, there was it was just nonstop, the kind of... Um, ethnic anxiety and the racial anxiety that we um, seem to cause and provoke in people. I mean, yeah, they killed five of our dogs over the years and left them for us to find in the driveways. And no one, like the police department nor the sheriff's department, did anything about it. So you begin to think there's no justice, there's no law, there's nowhere you can turn. And it's it was a very internalized kind of stress for me. My father ended up having two heart attacks. <laughs> My mother, unfortunately, got cancer. I think it was related a lot to the stress. My brother had a lot of physical stress on his body because of the constant violence he faced. Because he's, like, I'm mixed-race Chinese-Irish, right? But I, I tend to look, you can vouch for me here, I'm not lying, I tend to look maybe more Asian. Even when I'm in China, people will mistake me for being a Chinese person from the local area, wherever, wherever I am. My brother is more mixed-looking, and so people thought he was a Native American Indian. And a lot of the white people in our town really, really hated Native American Indians, which we also didn't realize was a, a prejudice that still existed in America. We were very naive coming from New York. That's the voice of May Lee Chai, and we're speaking about her newly released memoir, Hapa Girl. You're tuned to Open Book on KPFA 94.1 FM. I'm your host, Ranjita. You not only talk about the discrimination that your family faced during that time in South Dakota, but you also contextualize the story with the political landscape of the times. You mentioned the American Indian movement. You bring up Leonard Peltier, who's a political prisoner. And you also go back to the 1800s and talk about the struggle for the Black Hills and gold. Talk about the importance in bringing up the political struggles. This is something that I had to research myself. It was never taught in school. It was not... It was barely mentioned even when we were living in South Dakota. If not for the fact that there were you know, Native American students in my school, you wouldn't even know that there were Native Americans in South Dakota anymore for the curriculum that I was given. I've heard that since that time it's changed, but when I was there in the 80s, nothing, nada. So while I was trying to recover over the years from these experiences, I would look at other books about this, and I was shocked to discover that, in fact, just a few years before we moved to South Dakota, there had been all these murders on and near the Pine Ridge and Rosebud reservations of American Indian Movement members that Leonard Peltier, or as they said in those days, Leonard Peltier, um, he ha had been railroaded and put into prison on trumped-up charges. You know, ballistics tests proved that he did not kill the FBI agent who had been shot on the, on the reservation, yet he was still put in prison for life, where he remains. None of this was discussed. And everyone was talking about how the, in, like, well, white people were talking to my mother. You have to be careful. You have to know which side you stand on because they're going to come and kill us all. And there was this deep paranoia in the community, which had been spread by propaganda during these trials that the American Indian movement was evil and that their goal was to kill all white people. And in fact, the goal had been 
that they wanted just to get justice for the Lakota tribe. The only treaty the Lakota tribe ever signed was the Treaty of 1868, which said that their reservation was going to be the Black Hills. That's their holy land. Instead, they were moved to Pine Ridge and Rosebud after Custer confirmed that gold was found in the Black Hills. And because the American Indian Movement had come to the reservations to help with the violence that they were facing there, to help them also to file lawsuits to get the hills back, it had led to this atmosphere of just absolutely head-on racial violence directed at Native American Indians. And by extension, interestingly enough, people with long, dark hair, <laughs> which I, you know, I never really thought of myself or my family as being part of that conflict. And I thought of it as being part of the past. And suddenly I discovered that it's very much part of the present. It seemed like people were encouraging you to live in fear. It's not only is still affecting you today, it, it impacted your life growing up and your relationship with your family because throughout the memoir, you describe the fights that you and your father would have, and they would be very tumultuous. Why do you think it was so strained between you and your father in particular? Um, I think we're both very similar. <laughs> we're both very headstrong. And, I mean, I was hitting adolescence, so that's one issue. He was under tremendous strain as the head of the family, and he felt like he should provide for us. And yet, as I described in the book, you know, he had to resign his good position. People were blacklisting him, so he didn't feel like he was able to provide for us. So he, I understand now as an adult, he was undergoing a lot of stress. So both of us react to stress in the same way, which is we get into arguments with each other. And so he was actually trying to help us in his own way. You know, he was born in 1932 in Shanghai. So his way of dealing with this is just to say, there's no such thing as racism. You just have to learn how to get along with people. And he thought that he would be doing my brother and me a favor by saying this so that we wouldn't curtail our expectations for ourselves. But when your house is being shot at, your pets are being killed, there's tons of fights in school, you're constantly hearing trash talk, you kind of really do need to have that conversation about race. But he just hadn't been raised to talk about race. He, he had been raised to believe that it was bad manners to talk about race. So our conflicts, as I would be trying to make sense of this, and he was constantly insisting no, this wasn't happening, we would yell at each other a lot. I mean, it's just, but it's, it's really just because we're both very high-strung people. And, I mean, I, I don't blame him for this at all. I hope it doesn't come across that way in the book. I, I really have tremendous sympathy now as an adult for, for what he went through and the pain that he went through because I'm sure he felt so guilty that, you know, he, he thought he was moving us to a safer environment, and instead he moved us right out of the proverbial frying pan and into the fire. You mentioned in the book at one period in your adolescence, you described wanting to take a bottle of aspirin that you kept in your room. Tylenol. Yeah, I'm actually allergic to aspirin, so I was going to take the Tylenol and kill myself. I sound so cheerful as I say that. Um, it's odd. Yeah, I mean, now it seems so weird to me, but I had this backup plan. If I couldn't escape from South Dakota and this environment where I felt that I was completely worthless and always doing the wrong thing, I was going to take the whole bottle and kill myself. I didn't, you know, think about what if I throw it up or just damage my liver. You know, as a kid, you don't think about such things. That was my big escape plan. If I couldn't move, I, you know, I would just end it all. And you didn't end it all. What saved you? Well, I did move at 18, and then I, I, I kind of abandoned my family for a while when I was in college. But 
I was very fortunate in that I had a very good relationship with my mother. My mother never bought into the prejudices. I don't know how she managed to grow up in America and not feel like this sense of white privilege, but maybe because she'd had a, a very rough upbringing herself. She'd moved 27 times before she reached the age of 17. Um, her father had been an alcoholic, so she'd always grown up kind of feeling on the outside of maybe normal life. And she really always, you know, encouraged me and, you know, told me that brown eyes are pretty too and that um, little things like that and also told me that you know it's okay for girls to be smart that was another thing I thought was really odd about this community in the other places I had lived academic success you know hey immigrant communities it's, it's that's the path up the ladder right well now I'm living in an area where it was seen you're a loser if you're good at school and I was like what and and unfortunately I was one of those kids who was good at school and my mother always encouraged me so I mean without her love and I know my brother would also say for him without her love and support we wouldn't have made it and it seemed like she got a lot of strength through her religion as well which you decided that religion wasn't for you at a young age. Yeah, as I, I have a chapter entitled My Last Confession, and that was when I was 12. Because, um, talk about angry adolescent, I mean, man, I mean, they, even the priests were on me about this. I had gone to confess about, I felt like I was not living up to the moral duty as a devout Catholic because I didn't know what to say when my classmates made ethnic jokes or said racial slurs, and I didn't know how to counter it so I wouldn't say anything and then I'd feel really guilty about it typical Catholic guilt and so I confessed this and the priest told me that I had to pray for humility and I absolutely did not want humility so I I didn't do it but then since my sins were not absolved I could never go back to confession so that was the end of my career as a Catholic but my mother loved the Catholic Church. I think it had provided her with stability during her very chaotic childhood. So she used her faith in God and in Mary to give her the strength to be our pillar. When we were being shot at, she would be the one who would make a joke. She would be the one who would keep us happy. She would be the one who would buy the new dogs when the old ones... <laughs> Our old pets were shot. She would be the one who, she actually formed this Irish gang. And so she used her Irish background to get this little group of Irish-American Catholics together. And she used that as a base. And later it expanded to include people of, oh, various ethnicities. But she used that as a way to start putting down roots in this community. And she used that to help to protect the rest of us. Because it basically, as the only white person in the family, she could do that in a way that the rest of us couldn't. And she was being a true ally to her family. She really was. She was a warrior. My mother was a warrior mother. It seemed like a lot of the struggle when you are hearing negativity around you that you're not good enough or you're different other than... Do you see writing was a way, an outlet for you? Writing was my salvation. And I know that sounds exaggerated and melodramatic, but it's true. It was how I could survive. I kept a daily diary since I was age of 11. I wrote tons of very bad but <laughs> cathartic short stories. I wrote a lot of weird science fiction fantasy things just so that I could remove myself mentally from this environment of constant stress. And even to this day, I find that 
writing is absolutely essential for me. And I think that this is why I feel so sad as an educator when we talk about we have to just focus on math and science in the schools. I'm like, no, we need the arts. You know, the arts can be the lifeline that will get us out of a suicidal situation or out of, you know, a violent situation. We absolutely need the arts. That's the voice of Mei Li Chai, and we're speaking about her memoir, Hapa Girl. I'm Ranjita Giesler, and you're listening to Open Book on KPFA. We got to know your grandparents very well through this book. Talk about the role they played in helping to shape your identity. I was very fortunate in that I got to know my grandparents on my father's side, my yeye and nainai, um, during the six years that we lived in the New York metropolitan area. They lived in Manhattan, and we saw them every weekend from the age of 6 to the age of 12. And it was just such a warm feeling I got from them. You know, we'd go out for a, what we call a Chinese banquet with the whole family, my you know, my cousins and my uncles and an extended Chinese family and then friends and then whoever we managed to invite over the week. And we never knew how many people were going to be at our Sunday dinners. Having that warmth of family... And having a close relationship to my grandparents gave me a strong sense of positive identity with the Chinese side of my family and the Chinese side of my roots. If I hadn't had that, I might have fallen prey to a lot of the stereotypes that are portrayed even today in the American media. But because I had known my grandparents, when I saw, you know, the bucktooth, geeky, hideous Chinese character or generic Asian oriental in, you know, movies from everything from those Molly Ringwald films to, you know, Breakfast at Tiffany's. I could look at it and say, what on earth is that? You know, as opposed to thinking, oh, that's how Chinese are. Oh, my God, I'm so, you know, deformed because of that connection. I knew it was false because I'd known my grandparents and I knew their culture and it was very beautiful. And so I felt enriched by that experience and I always felt very proud of having my Chinese grandparents. And when I talk to people and say, oh, we're going to have a Chinese banquet this weekend in school back in New Jersey, people were like, oh, and it sounded, and they were really happy about that. Because I was living in an immigrant, mostly Italian-American community. But, you know, grandparents, you know, and Italians, they love grandparents too, and, and they love food too, so it makes perfect sense. So then when people would try to use that, like, oh, well, you're Chinese, as a way to get to me, that didn't get to me. Because I knew that being Chinese wasn't a bad thing because I knew my grandparents were not bad people and they were wonderful people and they were loving people. You mentioned being in middle school and your grandparents came to visit and to see the school. Did you feel embarrassed at all by their presence? I was very worried that people would be mean to my grandparents. and I felt suddenly, I'm 12 years old and I wanted to be very protective of them. I describe in the book how they, they suddenly seemed to me so much smaller than I remembered. As a child, I remember them being these giants. And then I'd had this growth spurt, as children do. And I suddenly found that I was taller than my grandparents. I'm like, how can I be taller than my giant grandparents? And then they seemed so small and fragile to me. And I just wanted to, you know, bundle them up and, and, and hold them so that no one could hurt them. And, of course, you know, they'd been through World War II in China. They'd been through the Civil War. No one was going to hurt them. They were a lot tougher than I gave them credit for. I just felt like I wanted to just fold them up and hold them in my pocket so that no one could hurt them. You eventually made it to China as a student and a teacher. Talk about the trip and what it symbolized for your life 
and how it changed your life? Well, I've gone to China a lot since then, but I think it was completely essential for me in terms of healing from this rather traumatic experience in that I was able to see Chinese culture unfiltered through American media images and I could see the diversity of Chinese culture the good and the bad and I had some really wonderful experiences with you know fellow students and with professors and the family members who had survived the cultural revolution and then I witnessed some really ugly things too that I describe about describe in the book I witnessed um, an anti-African riot that erupted in Nanjing and this was in 1988, and I was on a study abroad program. And in the media, it was portrayed, you know, much more simply, in the mainstream media, I should say, as simply being about, oh, these African students had tried to bring Chinese women to a party and been refused admit admittance, and suddenly there was a riot. No, no, no. It was a staged riot by corrupt administrators at this university who, was, who were trying to steal the the student African students scholarship money actually to invest in some kind of weird scheme and the students have been protesting so they'd staged this riot to try to silence the students now no one at that time reported on this in that manner they just pretended it was just about again interracial dating because everyone's everyone can ex accept that type of anxiety but if you talk about corruption and also I think there's a stereotype that Africans don't have money so, like, oh, why would Chinese be trying to scam money off from the Africans? Well, anyway, I, I saw this erupt, and I saw the anxiety about race and different people coming together, and it gave me a context to put my years in South Dakota, apart from just blaming myself and thinking I didn't know how to get along with people. I saw innocent people, the African students I knew, being attacked for no reason except that you could identify them on the street, basically. You know, and people, and there was a lot of inflammatory rhetoric being um, passed out in flyers and on the radio. And there were rumors that there had been a, a Chinese guard who had been killed by supposedly one of the African students. And so there were literally street protests erupting all over Nanjing. Um, and witnessing that, I came to understand that it wasn't just me that experiences. It wasn't my fault. Just as it wasn't these African students' fault that they were being attacked. It was all of these forces, these lies, these rumors, these anxieties, this sense the people who had been isolated before suddenly coming into contact with people that they're not very familiar with. And so it's very easy to project your greatest fears onto them. So even though it was a really horrible thing, it helped me to put my years in South Dakota into context and it also helped me to understand what an important role the media plays in fear-mongering. Fear-mongering in the media can filter down and at the street level result in innocent people being victimized. And look at where we are today. Right Great back example. where we started. Mm -hmm. The book is titled Hapa Girl and in it you describe the many events that have happened in your life and you described them in great detail. Um, and when, when it came to your mother's death from cancer, you briefly mentioned that you cared for her during the, the years that she was ill. And then toward the end of the book, you come full circle in describing the difficulty of going through her things at your father's house. And, and then you learned something about her at that time, that she had started an outline for her own book. 
about your family. How did this impact you, and, and how did it help you write this book? When I was taking care of my mother, it felt like the earth was ending because I just couldn't imagine living without her, and I don't think any of us could. And when, after she died of cancer, I, my father couldn't go through her things. He couldn't throw away her clothes, any, her books, her old reading glasses, anything. And so it was just, I found, I had to go, he heard it. He hurt his back, so I had to move to Wyoming from San Francisco to take care of him for a while. And that's when I decided I have to clean up the house and I have to bundle up her things so that he can go on because I knew he couldn't do it. And it was time. It, years had passed since her death. And while I was going through her things, I found a two-page outline for a novel she wanted to write. And she had subscribe to some kind of, I'd never heard of it, some kind of Writer's Digest, perhaps, forum where you get to meet a, communicate with a real live author about your writing. And um, so she'd sent this outline, but then she never wrote the book. I went through everything. Believe me, I didn't find the book. And it was just the outline. And I recognized that it, it wasn't really a novel. It was really our story. And she had, there was this one paragraph in particular where she talked about how the children faced daily violence and I was so shocked that my mother had known because she'd never mentioned it to us when my brother and I were growing up she had always been very cheerful she'd always encouraged us but she never talked about the violence while it was happening or even after it happened and so I always thought that like my father she just kind of either was in denial or she just didn't want to talk about it or that maybe she hadn't noticed and when I saw in her writing that she knew and that she was going to write about it, I suddenly knew that it was all right for me to talk about it. And she, it wouldn't be a betrayal of her and my father. It took away that sense of guilt, and I felt like, okay, she would want me to write this and talk about it. And maybe, you know, maybe it will help other people. I don't know. But I knew that I no longer had to keep it just hidden inside of me and as the title says hapa girl how did you come to name it hapa girl and talk about the labels that are thrown around so much today like i don't identify as hapa as much as amerasian talk about the the labels um well hapa comes from the hawaiian term hapa hali which means um like half foreigner because in Hawaii they assume they in the old days they would assume that you're Asian that's normal and then if you outmarried and then they would be they have a large population of mixed race people and so then hapahali meant that you were half Asian and then usually half something else often half white and that originally hapa or hapahali was a somewhat pejorative term but just as like queer studies and um, all these other kind of terms have been embraced by people as a way to get rid of the stigma. And also, I think we've come, a, uh, we've, most of us have moved on. Some of us still are pockets who haven't. Most of us moved on to embrace this idea that being mixed race doesn't mean that you're less of a person. It just means you have more cultural backgrounds in your family, and that's wonderful. And so I decided to use the term Hoppa Girl to take that sense of embracing what was once pejorative and saying, you know what, it's actually really cool to have a mixed background. And now you can look back, or can you look back on your life and similarly see it as 
the experience leading up to you being whole today? It's been a long journey. I mean, I, I think I could have done without like all the dogs being killed and the violence, but um, yeah, it was an exciting life. Uh, a little bit more exciting than perhaps I wanted at the time. Because I survived it, I can say, well, it made me a writer. And it gave me, I think, an understanding of all kinds of forces, old anxieties in our country, as well as you know, the power of the media which I think is why I continue to write. I know that there's a power in words, in the media, in popular culture to influence people. And damn it if I'm just going to just take it anymore. I'm not going to be passive. I'm going to create images and I'm going to create the images that I like and that I prefer and that hopefully will resonate with people so they don't have to live in that awful kind of fear and violence. And we can break that cycle. We've been speaking with Meili Chai about her newly released memoir, Hapa Girl. Published by Temple University Press, Meili will read from her new book on Saturday, October 27th from 3 to 5 p.m. at East Wind Books of Berkeley, 2066 University Avenue near Shattuck. Call 510-548-2350 for more information. I'm Ranjita Giesler, and you've been tuned to Open Book on KPFA. Thank you for listening. The KPFA local station board election season has begun. On Monday, October 8th at 8 p.m., tune in to hear the first of two on-air candidate forums. Candidates for the listener representative seats for KPFA's governing board will talk about what they have to offer, the station and its listeners. That's this Monday, October 8th from 8 to 10 p.m. Other Minds in San Francisco is digitizing historic KPFA interviews with Brian Eno, Laurie Anderson, and many more you can hear free at radiome.org.